1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 through 16. Let's pray before we open the word together this morning. We pray, O oh Father, that you would illumine our minds and our hearts and our souls this morning. From this text, you would teach, you would exhort, you would rebuke, you would comfort, you would sustain, and you would grant new life. It is only you that can do such a thing, and so we plead with you that you would do so in our midst this morning. In Christ's name we pray, amen. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9 through 16, this is a holy, inerrant, sufficient word of God. Let a widow be enrolled. She is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband, and having a reputation for good works. She's brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refused to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having Abandon their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have a younger widow Mary bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing widow has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. may remember from last week, those of you that were here, that the Apostle Paul went through the different requirements for widows that were to be cared for by the church, and he detailed widow care. I think in our passage this morning, uh, there is, let me say at the very outset here, there is a lot of disagreement about what this passage teaches uh, here in First Timothy. So I want to be careful as we go through this this morning. I don't want to be too dogmatic. I uh, don't want you to be too dogmatic as you approach this text and walk away from it. But I have a very firm opinion, and I'm going to share that with you this morning. Uh, but I think regardless of where you fall on this passage and what you believe Paul is speaking about in this passage, that what he does is he brings out various characteristics that are to mark these widows that are to be put on a list. And at the very least, these are godly characteristics. 
And so there is applicability for all of us in this room where we can take those different godly characteristics and we can say, where is it that these need to apply in my life and what is it that I need to grow in and to learn from as we think through this passage together. I want to look at this passage just under three headings this morning. The first is the question, the second is the qualifications, and the third is the caution. So we're going to look at the question that surrounds this text, look at the qualifications that Paul gives, and then we're going to look at the concern that he expresses or the caution that he expresses in this text. The question as we approach this text is, what in the world is Paul talking about? What's he talking about? When he talks about making a list, when he mentions widows being enrolled, they are enrolled and they're being put on some kind of list that the church is aware of and that the church safeguards and that the church knows. What is this list of widows? Well, some have interpreted this list of widows as just a continuation of what we saw Paul talking about last week, that this is just a list of the widows in the church that have been qualified to be cared for by the church. I think that's a possibility, but I don't think that's the case here. He's already given us the qualifications for what widows can be cared for who should be cared for in the church. And it would seem incredibly redundant if he was to go on for a whole other section where he is bringing more qualifications to bear and often repeating himself. This is not usually Paul's way of thought and his way of proceeding through a letter. And so I think that is at least one sign that that's not what he's doing here, just duplication. It's also true that he alludes to a pledge that widows must take to go on this list. And we see that in verses 11 and 12. And it would be very odd for a widow to have to make a certain pledge to go be put on a list to be cared for uh, by the church. But furthermore, if Paul was simply talking about the widows that the church was to care for, it seems wrong that at the very outset that he would say that young widows shouldn't be cared for. Now, young widows need to be cared for, just like old widows need to be cared for. So what is this list of widows? Well, it seems that this was not a list of those who were to be helped, but of those who were to help. That is, that they were to help others. That is, this was not a list of widows who were to be supported, but a list of widows who were being commissioned by the church to serve. I want to flesh that out a little bit with you here this morning. It appears that there were widows in the church's Ephesus who were put on some kind of official list in order to serve the church in an officially recognized capacity of extending sympathy and service within the congregation. If you remember back in 1 Timothy earlier when we were going through the office of deacon and we were looking at the different qualifications for deacon, we saw that there in that text that Paul spoke about, as our ESV says, the deacon's wife. But as I pointed out to you at that time, it's really just a, a generic word for woman there, and there's no there. Now, I think he's talking about deacon's wives. 
But as I told you in that sermon, I also think he uses the broader term woman there instead of just wives because what Paul is underlying is what he's getting at here as well in our current passage this morning. That as deacons are extending the sympathy and service of Christ into the body of Christ, they often need godly women to come alongside of them to do this ministry. Why? Well, because they are often ministering in sympathy and service to the bodily needs of women in the congregation. And so it would be inappropriate for them to do so just in and of themselves. Often it is wise to have a woman involved in such a sensitive situation, and there are gifts to be utilized. But again, let's make it clear, this is still the deacon's work. We need deacons who lead. But then they wisely employ women, and I would argue men as well, in the church to assist them in that work. That's what our book church order allows for in the PCA. Our elders and deacons even right now are working on how do we restructure the diaconate so that our deacons are leading, and then how do we fill maybe teams that are under them that are filled with godly men and women where we're employing the gifts of men and women to meet the mercy needs of the church underneath the leadership of the diaconates, underneath the leadership of the elders in our church. It seems like, again, don't want to be too dogmatic, but it seems like these widows were put on the list as such an order of women in the church. They were unique. They were unique in that like all the other widows, they were provided for financially and materially by the church. But they were unique in that not only were they provided for, but they were to provide for the sake of others in service. Tertullian, we see this in the early church, a church father from the second century wrote about, quote, an order of widows. He spoke about this order of widows devoting themselves, and then he lists these things. They devoted themselves to caring for the sick, prayer, providing for orphans, visiting prisoners, evangelizing women, teaching female converts before they came to the waters of baptism. It seems like this was a precursor to what Tertullian saw in the church my answer to the question of what Paul is speaking about here. Second, what are the qualifications? As he goes into the qualifications for widows to serve in such order, what are the qualifications? Well, I think these qualifications are not hard, fast requirements. Rather, what Paul is doing is he's not detailing everything that needs to mark them. He's giving general principles here. General things that should mark godly women that are serving in such a capacity. The very first qualification, I think, makes that clear. As he says, they need to be 60 years old or older. He's just giving a general qualification. They need to be an older woman who is seasoned and shown herself to be included on this list. But regardless, here we have the same we have the same instructions that we can learn from, like we did when we were looking at even the office of elder and deacon. Here are things that mark godliness. So we can see here there are different qualifications that mark these widows that are serving in some capacity in the church, that this is what marks them as godly. And so there are things for you and I to learn from this and applicable for us. 
He says in verse 10, she is to have, quote, the reputation of good works. It is, she's not an idle woman. She understands, as we will quote from the Heidelberg Catechism 1, that her life is not her own, but she belongs body and soul to her faithful Lord Jesus Christ. She understands that she was purchased with a price. She, under, she can confess with the Apostle Paul for me to live as Christ. She wants to present her body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord. She can say with the Apostle, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I seek to do to the glory of God. Why? Because she has been gripped by the grace of Christ. She's become a new creation. And though she is saved by grace, she is saved by grace not by works so that no one can boast. But she is saved by grace unto good works. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, Paul says, for what? For good works. This is what marks a Christian. Gripped by grace and gripped so much by the grace of Christ, He has shown His light into your soul and your person, and you are now in union with Him that now you seek to live for Him. And you seek to do good works to your Heavenly Father. What are these good works? I break them down, at least as Paul enumerates them here into two categories. Domestic delight and outward overflow. Domestic delight and outward overflow. First, domestic delight. He says she is to have been the wife of one husband. This echoes what was said of the requirement uh, for an elder that he was to be a, a husband of one wife. It's not that he couldn't remarry as an elder. He's not saying here that a widow couldn't remarry and have a second husband and that husband die. That she's still a widow, still qualified. What he's saying is the same thing he was saying about an elder candidate. That as the elder candidate was to be a one-woman kind of man, so the widow is to be a one-man kind of woman. That is, she was to be known as so devoted to her husband that there was no mark of sensuality, no mark of sexuality about her. She was truly above reproach as a married woman. Again, he begins with domestic delight. She was devoted to her husband, but now he states that she also brought up children. That is, she labored well, not only as a wife, but also as a mother. Again, a general principle here. It may be that she didn't have children. But notice that Paul did not have that modern destructive tendency of dismissing the high, high calling of being a wife and a mother. He's not marked by that. This is not a secondary inconsequential role in his mind. Widows are worthy of being put on this list as they have labored well for their family, both as a wife and as a mother. Domestic delight. But you'll notice that her service doesn't end with her family. She's not so consumed with her own that she has no time for those outside of her family. So the second, there is an outward overflow. There's an outward overflow. Now listen, I'm going to say this before we jump into this outward overflow. 
especially you young moms, this is a great struggle. Sat with many of you that are in tears and feel absolutely overburdened and overwhelmed because you feel like there is so much that is being asked of you and so much that is on your plate and you feel like you're not doing enough or can even handle what you have there. Look, there are different seasons of life. You can only do so much. That's just reality. You can only do so much. But a Christian family that is consumed with itself in the whole is not living wholly unto Christ. In fact, it is sub-Christian. It's not Christ-like at all. Years ago at another church that I served in another state, there was a young, there was a, a young father and husband that I respected an awful lot. Uh, I went to him one day and I said to him, you have the gift of teaching. Would you consider teaching in our children's Sunday school classes? He said, no. I think it's important for my children to be in adult Sunday school with me. We don't separate on Sunday morning. I said, okay. Went to him a little while later and said, would you consider coming on Wednesday nights and helping with our youth program? And he said, no. He said, uh, we need to be home every night together as a family so we can practice family worship. I said, okay. To him a little later, and I said, would you consider just discipling a couple of men, just praying with them, and maybe reading a book with them, get up before you go to work in the morning and meet them for breakfast and pray and read a book with them? He said, no. Well, I need to be at home so I can get my children ready for school and do devotions with them before their day starts. I said, well, could you meet with a man over lunch? Maybe read a book with him and pray with him. He said, no, that's when I do my devotion. There was no overflow. No outward overflow in this man's life. All that he labored at was really good. But he had gone from a man who delighted in his domestic responsibilities to being devoured by his domestic responsibilities. He had wandered from leading his family in worship to worshiping his family. Our homes should so be filled with the grace and the love and the mercy and the gospel of Christ that they overflow. That we're bringing others in and we're seeking others out. Years later, I learned that this man whom I had respected at one point, that he had left his wife, they were divorced, all of his children have wandered away from the church and the faith, and his family is seemingly fractured forever. And I'll tell you what, when I received that news, I wasn't shocked in the least. I wasn't shocked. When the focus becomes only our own, often we lose our own. Christian love overflows. 
You'll notice this was true of these widows who have a reputation of good works. They are, he says, devoted to every good work. They care for their own will. They have domestic delight. They have been a faithful wife. They have been a faithful mother. But then he lists three things that follow. There is an outward overflow. They have shown hospitality. They have washed the feet of the saints. They have cared for the afflicted. First, hospitality. She has invited others in. Her home was not a fortress set against the world. No, it was a way station of Christian hospitality to extend love. Hospitality is always a huge Christian virtue in every single age. It's one of the primary ways that you and I show love to those outside the Christian faith and those within the Christian faith. It was especially important at this time There were no holiday inns, there were no Marriott's, and so as Christians traveled, especially preachers, they needed somewhere to stay. So these women are commended for showing hospitality. But you notice it wasn't simply her space, but it was also her person that she shared. She, quote, has washed the feet of the saints. And this, of course, brings to mind our Lord and our Savior on the night in which He was betrayed, that as He was sitting there at the table, He got up and He put a towel on and He went around and He washed the feet of all of His disciples on the very night that He was going to be betrayed and taken to trial and crucified the very next day. Why? Because He said, I came not to be served, but to serve. That's the way of our Savior, and that's the way of His faithful disciples. We're marked by good works. We take such a stance. We stoop to the lowest of levels in order to serve others. We wash the feet of the saints. Sitting with a pastor friend this week who has historically ministered in the Deep South, and he was telling me a true story about two pastor friends of his there in the Deep South that were at breakfast one morning at a restaurant. The one pastor was white, and the other pastor was African-American. The African-American pastor, pastor and pastors, one of the largest churches in that state, And while they were sitting there having breakfast, a white woman walked into the restaurant to get her takeout order. And when the cashier brought her takeout order in a box to the cash register, this white woman looked at the table that they were sitting at and looking at the African-American man, she said, boy, come carry this out to my car. The white pastor began to get up, and he said, I'll take care of this. And the African-American pastor said, no, she was talking to me. So he got up, and he walked over, and he said, yes, ma'am. This box here? Yes. He lifted it, and he led her outside, and to her car, he opened up the back door, he put the box in her back door and opened the front door so she could sit down in the front door and in the front seat. He said, ma'am, put the food in the back of your car as you requested. Can I ask you one question? Are you a Christian woman as 
I assume you are. And she said, yes, I am. I said, oh, you know, I'm also a Christian. I actually pastor such and such a church. And you know, we're purchased by the same blood of Christ. We're siblings in Christ. And we're co-heirs with Christ. Could I just encourage you next time not to call someone that looks like me, boy. Remember that we're siblings? This was a man who understood the call to wash the feet of the saints. Stooping to the lowest level. And this was a woman that had no clue. He goes on to say... She's also cared for the afflicted. She's not simply a servant of those who are siblings, but she's a servant of those who are hurting. The word here, it has the idea of imparting and relieving those that are in need. She has an eye for the lonely. She has an eye for the distressed. She has an eye for the depressed. She has an eye for the discouraged. She has an eye for the afflicted. She has an eye for the anxious. She has an eye for the hungry. She has an eye for those that are overwhelmed and overburdened, the suffering. He says in summary, she has devoted herself to every good work. The, the word here is interesting that is used for devoted. It has the idea of following after like a dog trails after its master. Peter will use this term in Second Peter or 1 Peter chapter 2, when we're told that we are to follow in Christ's steps, that is, we are to follow His example, we are to, to, to trail after Him. And so he's saying this is what was true of these kind of widows. They have followed after. They have given themselves to every good work. This is her path. This is her way. It is the way. The way of righteousness. Ah, more of us Christians just to be like dogs trailing after their master. Well, that's just our way. Just to be producing good work after good work after work, good work because we're just wholly devoted to it. We have a widow example of this in Scripture. In Acts chapter 9, we have Dorcas. Like one of the most unfortunate names in all of Scripture. Uh, but Dorcas in Acts 9, where she is a widow and she dies, and they hear that Peter is nearby. So the congregation calls out to Peter, and Peter comes, and as he comes, we are told that, quote, all the widows were weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. She was full of good works. She was sewing little outfits for people that needed outfits. Ministering to the needs that there were. Calvin, in commenting upon this passage, will grieve over the church in his own day that they were neglectful of organizing serving widows like this. 
Phil Riken will say in our day, he'll say, doubtless one reason why the contemporary church is so confused about the role of women is that this pattern for women's ministry has been neglected or even forgotten altogether. And I think that's true. That's part of the reason that we're thinking through how to have our deacons lead and plug in men and women with their gifts underneath the deacons and serving in these ministry ways here in the church. Finally, Paul then provides a caution. The caution is about enrolling the younger women on this list, and there's instruction here for all of us as well. It's possible that these younger women, I think, are the same women that Paul will detail in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that he calls weak-willed women, these women that were going from house to house and teaching false things, and they were gossiping about things that they should not have. And if the widows on the list have met the qualifications that are to be exemplified, then these very characteristics that are found in the lives of these younger women, as Paul goes through them here, are to be things that are not to be exemplified in yours and my lives. He says, quote, for some have already strayed after Satan. He says in verse 12, they incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. What seems to be the case, again, I don't want to be too dogmatic, but what seems to be the case here is that we have young widows who were abandoning the faith, and they were abandoning the faith by marrying unbelievers. Paul will say in verse 11 that they've been drawn away by their passions, that there were sensual desires or sexual desires or maybe even emotional desires as they met other men, and they forsook Christ by being married to what they knew was an unbeliever. Paul will say there in 2 Corinthians 6 that a Christian is not to be unequally yoked. And so no Christian ever is to knowingly marry a non-Christian. And it seems that some of these young widows were who had committed themselves to being part of this order of widows, they had made that vow, and they not only forsook that vow, but now they're forsaking their very vow to Christ as they're traipsing after their passions and and yielding themselves to an unbeliever as his wife. Driven by passion instead of restraint. Again, the issue for Paul is not that they are getting remarried. He has no problem with them getting remarried. He will say that in 1 Corinthians 7. He'll say that again in this passage. He has no problem with a widow getting remarried. His problem is is that she's forsaken her vows. Younger widows don't seem to have the right stuff in Paul's mind. Verse 13, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house and not only idlers but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. Just busy talking. As has been said, our greatest strength is often our greatest weakness. Let's be pointed here for a second. Women are on the whole a lot better talkers and a lot better conversationalists than men. That's just true, on the whole. I read statistics. They estimate that a woman will speak 20,000 words a day. 
a man will mumble something like 7,000 words a day. We're just different. I remember when Leah and I were in college and we were part of this Christian fellowship and they brought in a married couple to divide up the men and women in this Christian college fellowship. Had all the men in one room and all the women in another room and had this couple come in to speak to us about Christian marriage and what it should look like to be a Christian husband and what it should look like to be a Christian wife. And I remember the Christian husband standing up before us men and he was saying, you men, you have to give your wife the time that she needs. He said, my wife needs three hours to talk every night. He said, some wives need four hours, some wives need one hour. I began praying for a one-hour wife at that very moment. (laughs) Regardless, the average woman talks more and often talks better than the average man. This also leads to the great temptation that accompanies it. Women are tempted more readily with being gossips and with being busybodies. And Christian women, you especially, need to help one another. It doesn't matter how much you respect that woman, how much you want to be like that woman, no matter how much you want her to like you, no matter how gifted you think she is. The moment you begin hearing gossip, the moment you begin hearing slander, the moment you begin seeing busybodiness, we're to correct one another, to stop one another, for our own good, but also for the good of our sibling in Christ, and even more so for the very name and glory of Christ. Paul is concerned enough about young widows falling into this trap that he doesn't want them enrolled on this list. There's a real temptation. He's saying the temptation is this, that they aren't busy enough, and so they busy themselves with what they shouldn't be busy about. He's saying they need to be busy, so Paul says let them be busy, but let them be busy by remarrying. Let them be busy by bearing more children with managing their own households. He reorients them away from sinful busyness outside the home to godly busyness inside the home. Why? It's fascinating. Why? He says, so our adversary is given no occasion for slander. Isn't that astounding? And I also think it's encouraging. Paul is pointing out that a woman's domestic labors are part of the great fight of the faith. He wasn't sowing nonsense when he highlighted domestic delight before. That's a good reminder. Especially for wives that feel so overwhelmed and mothers that feel so overwhelmed and feel like, I don't know that what I'm doing during my day is accomplishing anything for the sake of the kingdom. Paul say, no, you are. You see, you're in a spiritual fight. And as you 
cook or as you do the dishes or as you do the laundry or as you teach the ABCs or as you look for that baby formula, you're fighting the good fight of the faith. What you do matters. It matters. It gives our adversary no right to slander. Fighting the good fight of faith. You're not giving in to the temptation, the gossip. You're not giving in to the temptation to be busybodies, going from house to house and text to text and phone call to phone call. You're busy about good and godly things. You're presenting Satan from being able to slander the church and the Christian faith in your Christ. Fighting the good fight. Give him no opportunity, Paul was saying. This is such, of such concern to Paul that he would have a young widow remarry. He would have her change her life circumstances. He would have her commit herself to another man so that she avoids this temptation. Delighting in our domestic duties is good, and it is right, and it is holy. And from that should come an outward overflow that blesses the church and blesses the world. These women are being commended because that is the case. We have so many wonderful examples of this in the history of the church. Think about women who have committed themselves to Christ and committed themselves to their families and committed themselves to their husbands and their children and to just seeking to labor daily, day in and day out for the cause of Christ, just whatever is set before them. So many good ones. We have them biblically. You have it in Abigail. You have it in Ruth and Naomi. You have it in Lois and Eunice. You have it in Dorcas. You have it in church history with figures such as Monica, St. Augustine's mother, and Susanna Wesley, and think of others like Elizabeth Elliot, Sarah Edwards. There's so many in our church, so many godly women that do this so well, and I'd point them out this morning if they wouldn't get embarrassed. You see, it matters what you do daily. It's just that plodding day after day after day where we're just busy about the things that the Lord has given to us today. We're devoting ourselves wholly to Him today. We're working out our salvation with fear and trembling today. We're seeking to present our bodies as a living sacrifice to Him today. And we're just producing good works today for the glory of our Savior. These women are being commended for this. So how you think about your day? Are you just seeking to do good works to him today? It's a good way. It's the only way to live the Christian life holy. It's the right way to live it. Pray that's true of all of us more and more. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have made life, 
life purposeful in your Son. What we do day in and day out matters. Whether we go to work, whether we go to school, whether we are at home. Help us to be faithful, plodding pilgrims. Help us to seek to do good works, and we know that we can only do those good works if we have been first saved by grace, so we pray that you will pour out your grace on each of our lives in this room. We pray that once we've been gripped by that grace, that we would seek Commit ourselves to doing good works for your glory and praise. We want to honor you with all that we are. We want to arise as the church. Bless our God, our great God of salvation. It's in Christ's holy name we pray. Amen.